right. Well, this morning you can turn to the book of James. We are going to be beginning a new series in the book of James. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of the book of James. All right, raise your hand if you've ever read all five chapters in the book of James. All right, so then it'll be new for a lot of you guys. James, the epistle of James. Uh, this series that we start today and we'll be going uh, over consistently Sunday after Sunday uh, is entitled Faith That Works. Okay, that's the, that's the title uh, of our series through the book of James, Faith That Works. Now, this book is a book that is highly de- has been highly debated over the centuries, whether it should be in the canon of Scripture or not. Now, these debates, whether it should be part of the Bible, don't come from, uh, you know, confusion on the origin of the book, but it comes upon the essential doctrine of what James teaches. And some have found that it seems contradictory to the rest of the Bible. And they specifically would say, well, it just seems contradictory to what Paul says, right? Paul in his writings over and over again teaches about how salvation comes by faith alone, uh, by grace alone. And it's apart from works, that we don't do anything to earn our salvation, to which all of us should say, amen. Praise God that we don't have to earn it. We don't have to be good enough because we can't be good enough. And some people know that teaching, which is awesome, and see what James says, and they see it as contradictory. However, upon closer examination of the scriptures, it's not contradictory, but it is, it complements. You see, these two ideas complement them. And and what are these two ideas? Well, uh, Paul says that you are saved not by works. Fact, true. James says that out of your salvation, out of your faith should come works. Not that you are saved by your works, but if you have a faith without works, then your faith isn't real faith. And it brings this great balance of yes, you are not saved by what you do, but the evidence and proof of your salvation is the fact that there are good works in your life. Uh, We need to keep in mind that James doesn't deal with the topic of salvation, but the topic of sanctification, which is the process of salvation. You see, the Bible talks about how uh, salvation, it talks about salvation in three ways, past tense, present tense, and future tense. It's interesting. You, You take a look at the New Testament and there's parts that say you have been saved, past tense. And then there's other parts that say you are being saved, present tense. And then there's some verses that talk about how you will be saved. And so which is it? It's all of it. It's the fact that we are justified by God. We're good. We've been saved. But then the reality is, is that God's still working on us, that presently we are being saved. But we also look forward to a future date that we will be saved from this body, from this earth regarding heaven. And so James talks about that middle part, that process of being saved, which the Bible talks about as sanctification. So 
Uh, without further ado, let's just jump right in. James chapter 1, you can stand with me for the reading of God's word. Uh, we will read from verse 1 down to verse 11 as our introductory message into this incredible letter that James writes. James chapter 1, starting in verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. Because of the flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat than it withers the grass. Its, its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Father God, as we are standing here before your word. We pray that you would give us revelation, supernatural understanding into the scriptures that you have preserved for thousands of years. Lord, we know that this book of James, this letter that he wrote, has been preserved for just about 2,000 years because what is contained in it is applicable and relevant for our everyday lives as we follow you. We pray that you would teach us through this book, and we pray this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. Now, we can have the tendency to zoom past the, the greeting verses in the letters of the New Testament and get to what we would think of the good stuff. However, there's much to be learned uh, oftentimes in the first couple verses of a letter because it really sets the context. It sets the, the historical context into what is being written. Uh, we find out who, is, who the letter is being written to. We find out who is writing it. And so before we jump into the meat, which starts in verse 2, uh, look in your Bibles and look at verse 1. And I want someone to give me what the very first word of this letter is. Yes, sir. James. Everyone say James. This is the guy. Interestingly enough, you know, James is the New Testament equivalent to the name Jacob. You will not find the name Jacob in the New Testament. It's translated as James. And you won't find the, the name James in the Old Testament because it's translated as Jacob. Jacob is, of course, the Hebrew version of the, of the name James. Now, there are a handful of James in the New Testament uh, that we know about. But we believe this one to be none other than the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, as you know, Jesus had no full siblings because he was right conceived of the Holy Spirit. 
And so all of his siblings between Joseph and Mary uh, were half siblings and he did have them. Uh, We need to note that this is not James the apostle. You know, James and John, sons of thunder, they like wanted to call down fire upon that city. This is not that James, okay? During Jesus's ministry, this James, who is his brother, uh, Jesus's brother did not believe in him. None of Jesus's siblings uh, looked at Jesus as the Messiah. They only looked at him as their brother who probably had gone crazy. Uh, We don't know the details, but we do know that none of his siblings started following Jesus until after he had rose from the grave. We know that it, it seems that Jesus appeared to his siblings, specifically his brothers, after his resurrection, but before his ascension. That he appeared to them and they believed. They recognized him as Messiah and their story just got, uh, just got into motion. And we see even in Acts chapter 1, do you remember when Jesus ascends to heaven? Now the disciples are left to themselves. And so they obey Jesus by going to Jerusalem which they were already in, staying in Jerusalem and going to that upper room. And they basically were to wait until the Holy Spirit came. That was the directions given by Jesus. Well, interestingly enough that it's easy to pass over, James uh, would be one of the, the people that would have been in that upper room with the disciples waiting for the Holy Spirit. We're told that his mother and his brothers were there after Jesus's ascension. And so James goes on to be a great man of faith. Uh, We know him from the book of Acts and the letter of Galatians uh, that Paul wrote, that James is often referred to as the pillar of the church at Jerusalem. That, right, the church began to spread all over the earth, but before it did, the birth of the church started at Jerusalem. And so there were some people that stayed back. James was the head pastor, so it seems, of the churches and church in Jerusalem. And so that's James. Uh, That's the writer. But who's the audience? Who is the intended readers? Well, we're also given that in verse 1. Look there in your Bibles. He says, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. What do you guys think? What what do you think the 12 tribes is in reference to? Who, Who is he writing to? What do you guys think? Come on, yell it out. Twelve tribes of Israel. Yeah, for sure. That's what I heard. Uh, yeah, this is referring to, to the Jewish nation. James' intended audience, you should note this down, are Christian Jews. Okay, not just Jews, but Christian Jews, Messianic Jews, Jews that were uh, Jews by nationality but became Christians, right? Just like all the disciples. Um, these would be those who became born-again believers in uh, Jerusalem uh, in that early part uh, after Jesus's ascension, where now James led the church. But we're, we're given a little more detail. He says, to the 12 tribes who were scattered abroad, scattered abroad. This gives us a detail of who he's referencing. Uh, and he's referencing uh, the Jewish believers who experienced persecution uh, there in Jerusalem. That, that word scattered abroad in Greek is the word diaspora, which is where we get the word dispersion, where they were dispersed from Jerusalem out into the rest of the world. Why? 
Well, the same religious leaders that hated Jesus and killed him hated his followers and killed them as well. And so uh, the persecution began to be so great there in the epicenter of the church that men and women, boys and girls, had to flee the only nation that they ever knew. And they had to find new country and new place to live. We see this beginning to happen in the book of Acts, right? Does anyone remember who the first martyr of the church, the first uh, person? <laughs> yeah, give it to me, Adrian. Stephen, Adrian got a last service and he's here for round two for some reason. Uh, but uh, Stephen, right? Remember Stephen, Acts chapter six and seven, uh, where he gets martyred for his faith. And then Acts chapter eight is when we're first introduced to Paul, who begins this tirade against Christians. Where did he start? Did he start in other nations? No, he started in Jerusalem going after Jewish Christians and anyone who claimed the name of Christ and putting them in prison. And, and so because of this persecution, the Jewish Christians began to be scattered abroad. They began to be dispersed. So that's our audience. This is to whom James's letter is addressed to. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with that? Okay. Now, throughout this letter, it's only five chapters, but man, is it thick. And man, does he just, he doesn't waste time. Uh, today, we're going to see he just gets right into it. And it's awesome. And he speaks about a variety of issues about the Christian life. Now, I want you to understand that these topics that James will go on to talk about are not random. They're not like James didn't sit down. And he's like, you know what topics I like talking about the most? Ah, it's trials, temptation, and, and so on and so forth. No, he, remember, he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, to which these people then scattered abroad. He knew what the issues were. And so he is talking about these topics based upon the need of the people. You know, pinpointing one main theme of this book can be sometimes difficult. People have had a hard time doing so, and I can understand why. It seems like James will transition from topic to topic to topic to topic, and he's just going for it. He wastes no time. But when you step back and see the book from chapter 1 to chapter 5, you can see that it's all about the outworking of one's faith. That's why the title of our series is Faith That Works. It's the fact that, okay, you're saved, but what does that mean now? What, what do we do? James answers those questions. This book is all about spiritual maturity. It seems that James looked at the church to which he pastored and saw that there was a great need for a maturing of one's faith and so speaks to practical issues in life that are all summed up in Christian maturity. I like to think of this book uh, as, as how to live as a Christian for dummies. Uh, and I'm the dummy. Uh, because I know for me, ever since I started reading this book back in high school, it's been so helpful to me. Uh, you want to know how to live as a Christian? Read the book of James over and over again. It has, it's so widely practical where it talks about every issue. It feels like every issue of life for the Christian. And there's no reading in between the lines. Like he's not blunt. You're going to see that James just says it how it is. And for me, that's how I learn. Like, just tell me. Like, don't, don't, don't try to sugarcoat it. What do I need to do? Where do I need to go? And James doesn't pull any 
punches. And so uh, he opens up uh, talking about the trials that a believer, not might, but will experience. And this makes sense in light of who he's writing to. And so today's topic is about how to live as a Christian in the midst of trials and times of testing. And it makes sense that this is what he starts out with, because who, who is he writing to? He's writing to Christian persecuted Jews, meaning that who he is writing to, they have had to flee their homes, leave their families, leave their country, no doubt experience uh, radical financial difficulties as they had to leave their livelihoods for the sake of saving their lives. They have had madmen like Paul hunting down their families to try to put them into prison and kill them. Uh, they're going through what the Bible would describe as a trial. And so James speaks to, to what to do. Uh, we know from scripture, Jesus promised us that we will go through tribulation. That for the Christian, life ain't always gonna be easy. That there's gonna be an aspect about suffering for the Christian. And so James will go on to give his readers four steps when it comes to dealing with trials. And that's what we're looking at today. We're looking at four steps uh, of what to do. And we must keep in mind that what we talk about today is not optional for the Christian. I mean that James isn't saying, hey, this is one of my suggestions to you. No, he's saying, this is what you gotta do. This is what you need to do as a Christian when you are in the midst of a trial, a time of testing. All right, you guys ready to get into it? All right, let's, let's get in. The first step is this, it's the fact that in the midst of trials, we must shift our perspective. We must have a perspective shift. There in verse one, sorry, verse two, he says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Count all joy when you fall into various trials. I want you to notice that James refers to them as my brethren. I love this. He's not preaching from this high pulpit in this place. You, when you go through difficult times, you got to count it all joy. No, it's this idea of relatability. He's not saying these things from a place of pointing the finger, but from a place of being with them. He says, my brothers, my sisters in Jesus, this is the hope that we have in Christ. And so he says, count it all joy. This is a uh, going to be one of four action words that we look at today within these verses, okay? So you might want to note it down. The first action word is the word count, that we are to count. Now, anyone that doesn't like math, you should be all groaning. No, this, this has nothing to do with mathematics. What we're talking about here is perspective. The word count refers to the way someone thinks about something. It means to know how uh, someone considers something to be. It's about perspective. He says, I want your perspective to be different. Why? Well, because when difficult things happen in our lives as Christians, our tendency is to only look and consider what has happened rather than how God wants to use what has happened for our good 
and his glory. This is our sinful, just natural tendency is to, to ask the question, why me? This is the, the immediate reaction is often to groan, to complain, and it's, and it's understandable why. But James says that as a Christian, your perspective can be different than those of the world. If something bad happens to someone who doesn't have the Lord, it's like, yeah, that's a bummer. Like you should be bummed out and you have, you have no hope of this situation working out for something good. But for the believer, we can have a perspective shift um, because God is involved. And so he wants us to shift our perspective and change our reaction. And so what are we to count or consider? We are to count it all joy when we fall into various trials. Now, I want you to realize to take this verse at face value is a preposterous idea. It is absolutely ridiculous when you fall into a difficult time to then consider and have the perspective of joy and rejoicing. You see, if, if a non-believer was hearing this verse, there should be an inner chuckle. There should be an inner, why would I ever do that? What, what means or what purpose would we count it joy? It wasn't a good thing that happened. So I want you to note down that this word trials is the word testing. It's the word exam or examination. Uh, and, you know, all of us don't particularly, maybe some of you do, like tests. But man, are they good for us. They, they, they show us what we know and where we are at. And Peter tells us, similarly, that we shouldn't be shocked when we experience trials in our life. Notice 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. He says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. I love this. I love how he puts it. He says, don't think it's strange. Said, don't be surprised when you go through something difficult, when you go through a fiery trial, something that's, man, this is, this is no joke. Why, did, why don't we have to be surprised? Well, because Christ told us we were going to, but we can, notice what he says, verse 13, we can rejoice knowing that Christ suffered. He left that pattern. And so we, this is not something that should catch us off guard and there is reason to rejoice in the midst of the trial. Count it all joy. Now, we need to realize that he isn't saying that when a trial or a period of testing happens to you, that you should go, oh, giddy. Oh, this is exciting. Woo! This is awesome. I'm so glad we got the flat tire in the middle of the desert when it's 110 degrees. This is great. I'm just so excited. This is, this is fantastic. This is the greatest day of my life. He, he's not saying that when you have family division that you should say, oh my gosh, I love when my family doesn't get along. This is great. I'm so glad we never talk to grandpa anymore. I love that. No, he, he, he's not saying that. He's not saying that you should rejoice in financial struggles. I'm so glad we don't have enough money to, to pay rent this month and so we have to move. I'm just, wow, 
This is, this is awesome. Is it Christmas already? No, no. We don't look at the trial and rejoice in the bad thing that happened. What we are able to do is that we are able to choose joy in and through the trial, knowing that there is a factor and his name is God and he is aware, he is in control and he has our lives, according to the scripture, in the palm of his hand. And so our joy is different than happiness. I've told you guys this many times that happiness is based upon what? No, happiness is based upon what happens, meaning it can be up and down. Meaning if you only seek after happiness, if that is the pursuit in your life, then your life is going to be a roller coaster. Because when you do get the flat tire, well, uh, now I'm not happy anymore. Uh, Oh, now I am happy. Now I'm not happy. Where joy is something that is constant because it is not based upon what happens, but upon the immovable reality of God Almighty. But in the moment, man, that can be difficult because it's hard. It's difficult. James isn't dismissing the difficulty, but he's giving you a solution to shift your perspective. That you can look at it differently. That you all you might see is what is wrong, and God says, I want to show you what I'm doing. I don't know any of you that might cross-stitch or embroider, uh, but if you've ever heard of cross-stitching or embroidery, this is an example of that. Um, now, if you notice, let's say the example of the, the whale, right? If I just showed you that picture, which is the backside, you'd be like, what are you showing me? What is this? What's going on here? Okay, that's the backside. That's where the needle's going in. And it kind of looks like a mess. But then if you look at the, 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 the side with the whale, it's like, oh, okay. Like, yeah, I see what it is. And that's same for this, you know, the, the flower thing. Uh, again, I'm, I'm not a girl. So, uh, but the flower thing, and on the back end, right there, it, when it looks something that's pretty. And our life is like this sometimes, where we look at it and we say, God, you don't know what you're doing. Because I look at my life, and this ain't great. It's not looking good. And, and we see the, the tangled mess of sometimes what we see in life. But you see, what God is doing is he is weaving the, these threads of our life, and we're told in Scripture that we are his workmanship. God is working and God says, I want you to shift your perspective. And yes, that looks like a mess, but look what I'm doing with it. Look at the other side of it where yes, what you see is hard and it looks crazy, but I'm using it, right? The verse that we know, God works together all things for good to those who love God and according to his purpose. So even the bad and difficult things, God says, I'm using it for your good and I'm using it for my glory. But that's hard. But, but James says, you don't have to look at it like the world does. And so this is what we are to do. Next, we will see why we can do it. I mean, this seems like an impossible task. It really does. And it is if we don't see God's purpose. But what is his purpose? If he's doing something and we're to trust him, what is he doing? Well, verse three says we're to see his purposes, okay? Verse three, we are to see his purposes. Look again, verse three says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. 
it's not for nothing. There is something that God says, I am working through that difficulty. I am working through that hardship. It is a time of testing. And God says, I am allowing you to go through this because it's producing something in you that can be produced in no other way. There's no shortcut. There's there's no other way to do this. And so I'm allowing you to go through it. Think about it. Is God power, true or false? I want you to give me either one. Is God powerful enough to take you out, (laughs) he already knew, to take you out of your current time of testing or trial? Can he do it? Does he always do it? Which means that in God's absolute control and sovereignty of your life, that God has seen fit. God has allowed for whatever reason that you might not know the full scope of it. It might seem like a mess, but God says, trust me because it's producing something good. God, and and that's how we have to look at it. We have to see his purposes. Notice verse three, he says, he gives us the second action word. You can note it down. It's the word no. Everyone say no. Now this word no, it doesn't just mean to acknowledge something as a fact, but it means to learn and become familiar with it, to know through personal experience. I'll give you an example. I just drove this last week uh, from California to Missouri. It was a 23-hour to 24-hour driving time just alone. Uh, It was awesome. Why did I do it? Well, my friend was moving out uh, to Missouri. That's the only reason I would do it. Uh, And uh, we drove him out. And uh, we we got there, and he's in the Kansas City area. And I, I remember him telling me and others how good Kansas City barbecue is. And, and they just would, would talk about, oh, man, there's nothing like Kansas City barbecue. And I'm like, okay. like I, And so I knew that. I knew it was good. <laughs> and then we get there, and uh, very hungry, and we stop at a place called Joe's, and uh, it was literally connected to a gas station. Like, you're eating, and people are, like, filling up gas. Yeah. And it didn't matter where you were, because as soon as you took a bite into that brisket barbecue sandwich... Nothing else mattered in the world. And and at that point, I knew. I knew before, and now I knew. Do you guys see the difference? I knew, but now I really know. And and when he says here, knowing, it's not just something, yeah, I acknowledge that, but it is to personally put yourselves in it. It is to experience, and the only ways that that happens is through trials. It implies a process of personal knowing, meaning it's not going to happen at once. It's going to happen as you live your life and as you experience the faithfulness of God to see you through, through the most difficult things. And so what are we to know? We are to know this. We are to know that his purpose is for producing. His purpose of allowing these trials, this time of testing, is to produce something. And this is where James equivalates trials and testing. Notice in verse 2, he refers to various trials. Then in verse 3, he refers to uh, the, the, the testing of your faith. Faith testing and trials are one and the same. They are synonymous terms. They are interchangeable. And so the question is, will we trust ourselves or will we trust God? 
Trials are the way, not for God to know our faith, but for us to know what our faith is in. One of the most famous testings in the Bible is the testing of Abraham and Isaac. You see, it wasn't for God to know if Abraham really had faith in him and would really obey him. It was for Abraham to know where he was at in his faith relationship with God. I want you to note this down. Trials are the indicator of what our faith is in. Trials are the indicator of what our faith is in. You go through something difficult in your life, you'll find out real fast if you really have faith in the Lord. You might trust him when things are smooth sailing, but what about when you lose a loved one? What about when your parents split up? What if your, your house that you've always lived in because of financial difficulty with your dad's job, you had to move to a small apartment and share room with your dreaded sister? Right? What, your faith becomes real. Before it's theory, now it, it either, it's either going to sink or swim. And you'll find out very quick, did you have, was your faith theoretical or was it real? And so what is God's intended goal with allowing these tests of faith in our life. Well, you can note it down. It produces patience, produces patience according to verse three. The word produce, it means to accomplish or to put something into effect. Um, Now, if you're like me and you hear the fact that God wants to make you more patient, uh, you groan a little uh, because patience is an area where I know I lack in and my flesh uh, honestly has no desire to grow in. Uh, now, my, my, the spiritual side of me wants to grow, right? The spirit of God in me. Uh, but man, uh, th- this word is not referring to the type of patience that you need when your mom is spending eight hours at TJ Maxx or Target. And all you wanna do is just go home and your mom says, you just need to be patient. That's not this, this word patient, Okay. Uh, that I don't know if I'll ever be able to fully grow in because my wife loves TJ Maxx, okay? Uh, and we can, okay, different, different topic. The type of patience, it, better translated, is the word perseverance. It's the word endurance. What do we, it is the word that means to have a steadfast power to withstand stress and hardship. What do we need endurance for? Well, notice it's a testing of faith. And that testing of faith will prove to be an enduring faith. What God wants to produce in your life through whatever it is that you are going through or will go through or have gone through, it is to strengthen your faith so it's not weak. So it's not something fragile, but something that has the ability to endure whatever may come. You know, the need for endurance is very real when running a marathon, I've never ran a marathon. I have no plans of ever running a marathon. 26 miles long of straight running. Now, for me, I need that endurance when I run one mile, let alone 26. And it's that, that, that moment that you need endurance is for me right when I start running uh, because you have that thought of what can I do to stop this activity? Well, what can I do to just not run anymore? Uh, and, and in that moment, you need endurance. When that marathon runner is 10 miles in and has 16 to go, and all they want to do is lay down on the floor and do nothing. 
They need endurance. It's an ability to say no to your fleshly instincts and to keep on going. Is not our Christian walk described as a race? Isn't that interesting? Our walk is described as a race. It is. And it's a marathon. It's not just a sprint, but, but it's a marathon, meaning there's going to be points in life where you want to step out of the race but we are in need of endurance. And the only way that God can strengthen our faith is through the allowance of the times of testings and trial, because then we start to know where our faith really lies. And so in the midst of trials, we are to have the perspective shift. We are to see his purposes. Thirdly, in verse four, we are then to surrender our plans. We are to put up the white flag of what we had in mind. You see, Trials are so difficult because they are against our plan. We didn't plan for that. That wasn't our plan. We didn't want that to happen. And so something that we need to do as a Christian in the midst of a testing period is to not fight against it so hard. But that's our tendency, is that when something bad happens, we just try to figure out any way to get it to stop. And there's an understandable, like, you know, thing that God puts in us. Like we're not excited, right, about bad things. But sometimes we can squirm and complain and moan and groan. And so that what God wanted to do by strengthening our faith, we don't allow him to do. And then we go through the trial, but then it doesn't produce anything. And so we still have to go through the difficult things, but then God says, you didn't let me do it. You didn't let me do it in you. You didn't let patience have its perfect work. Look at verse four. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Here's our third action word. It's the word let, uh, which really is the opposite of action. Uh, it is, it is the, the idea of surrendering. Everyone say let. We are to let that endurance, let patience have its perfect work. Now, don't get me wrong, right? We shouldn't pursue trials in our life. We shouldn't seek after uh, to put ourselves in financial difficulties, right? We shouldn't, we shouldn't seek after, well, I just, I want God to, to do this, this strengthening of faith. And so I'm going to go and uh, jump off the balcony because I'm going to break my leg and it's going to be really hard. And so that will, that will be good. No, no, we're not supposed to pursue after trials and times of testing. But when they come and they're outside of our control, rather than the moaning and the groaning and the complaining and the squirming and the fighting, which we're so prone to do, we are to allow God to have his enduring work in us to be perfectly complete. This, 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 this word perfect work is the idea of a complete product. Have you guys ever pulled fruit off the tree too soon? Maybe it's, a, it's a terrible experience because uh, if, you, if you are growing fruit, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. And so you get excited and you might, you might be so ready. Like, you know, you just planted this apple tree and you've been waiting a few years for it to get to the right place. And, and so you, you are looking at this apple grow every day. And then you just, I can't take anymore. So you pull it off the tree, you bite into it, and it's hard as a rock and has no flavor because why? You picked it too early. And oftentimes this is what we do in our lives. We, 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 we jump the gun and we, in a sense, pick the fruit too early. And when God says, I was, I was working and you cut it off, 
and you didn't seek me and you, and you made your own way, you made your own plans because what was happening to you wasn't according to your own plans, but it was according to mine. And sometimes we think that the easiest route is the best route. And God says that's not always true. And so we are to let patience have its perfect work. You know, I, I, I think of myself as a kid. I have very like sensitive eyes uh, where I don't like, I don't want anything, which we all have sensitive eyes, but like, I'm just kind of a little girl about it. I, I just don't like to have, I don't, I don't, even for Haley, I'm like, don't, no, don't, like, don't touch my eyes. Uh, it's sensitive. And you know, like if someone's close to your eyes, it starts to flutter. Like I, I tried to wear contacts. Uh, I did for a few years. It was a traumatic experience. Just trying to, it was just terrible. Even for me to touch my own eye. And so I remember as a kid, super dramatic, you know, when, when I had like an eye infection and my mom needed to put like the eye drops in, I would fight her tooth and now I would, there was no way. And so they'd have to literally pin me down and like, you know, pry my eye open just to get them in. And I'd fight and I'd complain. And sometimes we're like that with the Lord, where, where we look at our life and we don't like where we're at. We don't like what happened. And we assume, we assume that no way God loves me. Why would he allow this to happen? And we look at what's happening in our life as the basis for God's love for us. When God says, no, I love you so much, I'm allowing this to happen because you got to grow. you got to grow up. you got to mature. I want to strengthen you in this. But sometimes we squirm and then we miss the blessing. We miss what God wants to produce in our life. So we still go through the difficult time. You're still going to go through it. You're in a fallen world. But if you don't allow God to have his work in your life, then you're going you're to miss it. And it's going to be a bummer. And so in the midst of trials, we are to shift our perspective as we see his plans. And then we are to surrender our plans. But the only way that we can do any of this is by the fourth and final step, which is to seek his provision. And verses 5 through 8, we are to seek his provision. It says, verse 5, if any, if any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So we get to our fourth and final action word of ask. Everyone say ask. This is our fourth and final action word, okay? Count, no, what was the last one? Let, and, uh, and now finally ask. And this is where it all comes. Listen, what James is asking his readers to do is an impossible task without the influence and strength and power of God. So how do we do it? We ask. We, we simply ask you know, we will have those questions as we go through the, the testings of what do I do? We will have points where we need to make legitimate decisions. And James answers these questions. We ask the Lord. Wisdom. Wisdom is, is understanding for living. Okay? That's what wisdom is. It is to know what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. And if we are in a situation where we, we don't know what to do, and we don't know how to do it, and we, know, we don't know what to do, we are to ask God. Why? Notice in verse 5, because he is a giver. 
He gives wisdom to those who ask. And notice we're given two descriptions of how he gives. He gives liberally uh, and without reproach. Now, liberally is not referencing to liberals, okay? Liberally is in reference. It means uh, something or someone who is generous uh, and without reserve. The word liberally is a descriptive word uh, that means something that it's simple and straightforward. There's no catch. There's no hidden fees and taxes. You know, when you go to buy something online, you're like, oh, that's a great price. And then you go to the cart and you try to check out and there's all these added fees and taxes and shipping is even more than the price of the item itself. And it's like, what the heck? God's not like that. You don't ask him for something. He's like, well, you got to give a little more at church first. No, there's, there's no, there's no catch. God says, if you ask believing, I will give you what you need. But so often we ask without faith. We might code it in, in Christianese and words that sound like we have such faith in God, but inside we, are, we, are, we ask with doubting. Say, I, God probably can't even tell me what to do. God's allowing me to go through this, and so he's probably just gonna, I'm all, I'm all left alone. And God says, if you just ask in faith, I, I will give you more than you could ever imagine. We're to ask without reproach, or uh, he is, Someone who gives without reproach. It's the idea of, of no criticism. Meaning you come to him, he's not going to insult or mock you. He's not going to make you feel guilty of, oh my gosh, here they, go, here they are again, seventh day in a row, asking me for something. No, God's not like that. The idea of without reproach is that God is ready, wanting, and willing. That he gives without regret. You know when you, you are given something uh, from someone and they make you feel guilty, the fact that they gave it to you. God's not like that. God gives and gives and wants to give more. But do we ask in faith? Do we ask in faith? We're to ask in faith, notice verse six, without doubting. And he goes on to describe that as someone who, someone who prays and asks God, but doubts that God will give it, is like a wave tossed to and fro, unstable, double-minded. But how often can we be convicted of that? That we ask God, but we don't believe that he's actually gonna do anything. We don't believe he's actually gonna give us what we need. And so the life of the doubter is like a, it's like a boat. It just goes back and forth and it's, it's double-minded. It's, it's unstable. And God says, if you would just ask in faith, I will give you what you need for the moment. Seek my provision. Seek my face in the midst. So sometimes we ask the question, why? But we fail to ask the question, what? God, what do you want me to do as I go through this? What do I need to do? because I know that you're working, looks like a mess on the front, but I know on the back end of things, God, you're, you're doing it and you got me. So listen, God desires in your life to bring you to a faith that can endure. A faith that isn't rocked when something difficult happens, but a faith that can last you from your junior high age all the way until you are old. The only way that that's gonna happen is if you allow God to do his work in you in the midst, not in spite of, but in the midst of the times of testing. It's been said before that you are either coming out of a trial 
you are in a trial or you are about to go into a trial. That's, that's really, there's no other options. That, that this is something that Jesus said that, he, that we will go through. He said, in the world, John 16, you will have tribulation. But he says, be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. That even the difficult stuff in life, God says, I have my plans and my purposes and it will have an end. So James doesn't pull any punches, pretty straightforward. And he says, if you are a Christian in the midst of a time of testing or trial, then you are to shift your perspective. You are to see his purpose. You are to surrender your plans and seek his provision. Listen, I want you to, to take this passage to heart. I mean, that maybe some of you today are going, you'd be like, yep, I'm in a time of testing and I am failing. Go to this passage, renew your mind, ask God to speak to you. And I'd encourage you if maybe you're like, no, everything's like great and no, doesn't feel like testing. There might be something coming next. You don't have to be scared, but you can be prepared of this determination. God, whatever happens in my life, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust James chapter 1 that says that I can choose joy because of your working, because you're producing. And even if I can't see it, I'm going to trust it, and I'm going to seek you. And if I don't know what to do, I'm just going to ask you in faith, simple faith, trusting that you are going to give me what I need every day. Amen? Lord, we uh, are just humbled by your continued involvement in our life. We are so grateful that you love us and you loved us and that's why we love you. You're the initiator. You're the one who originated our relationship with you and we just responded to that call. We thank you that you've drawn us to yourself that we might not go through this life alone. Lord, we need you. We want you. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us the strength to ask in faith for the wisdom that we need as we experience day in and day out this sinful world of fallen humanity, including ourselves, Lord. We, sometimes it feels like we put ourselves into the testing or the time of trial. We know that you use all things, that you are not a God who is just sitting back and watching, but we trust this morning in your sovereignty, that you're in control. And so God, we place ourselves where we want to be, which is right in your hands. And God, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.